0: This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSE Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and joining me today, I have Charles Fehrenbaugh staff at the Applied Computer Science Group at Los Alamos National Laboratory. I met and have worked with Charles through the US Research Software Engineering Association. Not much on anything super cool, but on community resources like the website. So Charles, I'm really happy to have you on RC Stories because I like you a lot. I know almost nothing about your background and I'm really excited for you to share your story today.
1: All right, well thank you, I'm glad to be here.
0: Let's start with that background tell us maybe as far back as your training and how you got interested in scientific programming.
1: Well, let's see. You could say it goes all the way back to junior high school when I first started learning to program, but maybe that's a little further than you wanted to go. I think it really starts when I was in college. I double majored in math and computer science and loved both of them. Did grad school in math, finished a PhD, I was trying to go the academic route that field is so crowded. It's so hard to get an academic position. I found myself wondering, okay, this isn't working. What else can I do to put food on the table. I figured, okay, I like to program. I've got the computer science in my background and I can probably get a job doing some kind of programming. That's what got me started down the road. I wasn't even thinking about anything like the phrase RSE really wasn't around. And even the concept, I wasn't really thinking in those terms. It's just, okay, where can I find a place that I can contribute? That's what got me going down this road.
0: So what did programming training look like in high school? It's interesting that you mentioned that because I'm thinking back to my education. And in my grade school, I remember we had a typing course and everyone was in competition to like be the fastest typer. And I'm pretty sure we played a lot of Oregon Trail, but we didn't have anything that resembled programming.
1: We had a computer club in my junior high school, and that continued on into high school. And it was really just informally me hanging out and starting to work on some of the projects. I think I might have taken one formal class along the way, but that wasn't really the driver. The driver was just, "Hmm, I had fun doing it.
0: That's really awesome to hear that your main motivation was having fun because I think that's sometimes forgotten. You found this niche in programming and it was very practical. You needed to support yourself, your family. How did that sort of transition into being at a national lab? Because arguably, if you're interested in programming and you want to make a career out of it, there are many different areas that you could pursue. You could go into industry. There's obviously national labs. There's sort of niche roles that do pay something in academia. How did you like stumble upon a national lab job?
1: Well, it wasn't actually my first job. My first programming job was working at Raytheon, doing some HPC work for them. They had what, looking back, you could probably call an RSE group. They were implementing high-performance signal processing algorithms and had a group lead who was, his main mode of operation was to find physics and math PhDs and teaching them to program because he figured that if you brought somebody who could understand the math and the signal processing algorithms, it was easier to teach them programming than to teach complicated algorithms to somebody with a programming background. So it ended up, I, I just kind of stumbled into it, but it ended up being a really good fit. I did that kind of work for about six years and then transitioned to the, the national lab setting, which in a way was very similar. It was kind of defense related application required a scientific understanding as well as the programming understanding. And I could come in with that. So without really planning it at all, I just kind of stumbled into this career that was a really nice fit for my skill set.
0: Awesome. So one thing that you said kind of caught my attention, you said it could have been an RSC group and this is a really interesting perspective to share because a question that I have sometimes is, how long have RSC groups or RC sort of been out there, but existed before we would explicitly call them that? So are you sort of suggesting that these groups have been around since what, the 90s, the early 2000s? How far back was this?
1: Okay, this was in the mid 90s. Started that job in 95 and the group, I think, existed for a few years before that. It was just this situation where you had one set of domain scientists who understood the signal processing algorithms. You needed to hand it off to another group of people who could understand that well enough to implement these algorithms, you know, make them reliable, do the software quality, do the HPC work to get them running fast on the big platforms. It's kind of the same story. I suspect that for as long as there's been HPC and there have been scientific programs that needed to be used in a production setting, as long as that's been around, you've had RESEs, even if they weren't called that. I'd say that goes back quite a ways, probably.
0: So you may not know the answer to this question, but you may have an idea. At what point do you think the need to define an RSC group or an RSC manifested, and what were the reasons for that?
1: My guess is the real driver for it was out of this need in academia to make a place for people who are doing this kind of work when they didn't fit into any of the buckets of the academic system.
0: I think that would be my guess to the fact that we need to have this highly trained set of individuals, but on a traditional academic path, you don't normally think of that. You think of become a postdoc, and then you go to become a faculty, and usually you do some software engineering, not because you sort of want to, but because you have to. And anyway, we don't have to get into the extremely hairbally world of, of discussing why RSCs are needed, but I was just curious. Let's talk about now you and research software engineering. I don't want to make any assumptions, but I assume that you consider yourself a research software engineer?
1: That's probably the best description of the work I do day to day. Depending on the setting, I may or may not call myself that. I mean, I'm in a computer science group, but a lot of the work I do is bringing that computer science to an application setting, to an RSE setting. I kind of live on the fuzzy boundary between the two
0: lots of fuzzy boundaries (laughs) could you tell us a little bit about some of the work that you do if it's helpful you could describe an example project or a day in the life to get us a sense of the communities that you serve and then the functions that you serve
1: i have two main projects that i work on they're both large multi-physics simulation codes with big user bases it's multi-physics the piece i'm usually most involved in is either fluid dynamics or some of the underlying infrastructure that supports the physics things like mpi communications and things like that so i'm working day to day on different tasks that are needed to serve this big user base And I'm usually not directly interacting with the user base, but I'm working on things that will, at some level, help them to do what they need to do better, whether it's directly implementing a new feature or maybe improving a testing system. That's the task I'm in the middle of right now, is doing an upgrade for a unit testing infrastructure. Things like that, that whether directly or indirectly, keep the user base doing what they need to do.
0: When you think of your role, what is your most favorite thing to do? So what is something that you could start and then have three hours pass and you're totally unaware that time is passing because you're just in this lovely state of flow?
1: I'd say that's when I'm grabbing on to just one problem and really digging into it and solving it and just getting the pieces in place to actually make a new thing work. It's a good place. It's a good
0: feeling. I totally agree. I love that feeling of flow. Mm -hmm. So you've had a lot of different experiences at, at different kinds of sort of software engineering jobs. When you kind of look back on these experiences, what do you see being the major differences between, for example, being a research software engineer in industry versus academia versus a national lab?
1: Let's see, industry versus a national lab. I think industry of the three, I would guess, based on my experience, that's where RSE work tends to be recognized and supported the most because if you've got an application you need to get up and running for a defense contract or whatever, then you've got to make sure you support those people. In my limited experience, at least, they did a reasonably good job of doing that. At the other end of the scale, you've got academia, where, like we were talking about before, you have to try and fit RSE work into the bucket of postdocs and tenure track and this and that, and it never quite fits into any of the categories that exist. That's maybe the other end of the spectrum, where there's the least support in the existing system, and then I'd say probably the national lab is somewhere in between on the spectrum. It's got elements of both.
0: Interesting. After you've had a lot of this experience, and I think you're one of the committee members of of USRC, is that correct? right, yes. When you look at the next, I guess, couple of years to maybe the next five, maybe the next decade, what do you think are the biggest challenges for research software engineers moving forward?
1: I think one of the biggest things is just changing the system in a lot of different places to recognize that RSE work is a thing and to value it and to provide for it in the way that you provide for the other categories that you already know about, the IT category and the research category and so forth. It's a nice thing to get people to start understanding the concept and using the acronym and so forth, that's been a good first step. But the part that's really challenging is to change a system that has kind of taken this whole kind of work for granted and bring it out into the open and support it and nurture it. For a long time, the assumption has just been, you know, this will be something that's done behind the scenes by your grad students or your postdocs or whatever, or in the middle of the night by fairies. You don't have to do anything, it just kind of happens anyway. And making the transition from that to this is a category we support, the way we support all our other things, that's a big transition. I think it's underway, but I think there's a lot more to be done in that space.
0: Do you think it's one of those things that just will happen slowly, kind of organically over time? Or do you think there's like an explicit set of steps that we might actually take to make something happen? And then This is something that I think a lot about too. I sort of would approach it as like, okay, what can I do to help with this problem? And so as an individual, I can say, okay, well, I can create awareness for RC. I can be very loud on social media and say, hey, this is what research software engineering is. Here's how to support it. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I step back and I say, but yeah, what am I actually doing? Because the larger problem isn't just about awareness, as you sort of pointed out. It's about policy. It's about changing institutional protocol for the way things are done. Mm -hmm. How, How do we even go about that? What can I do?
1: That's a good question. Maybe the best way for me to answer that is to tell you how I've answered it, or at least tried to answer it, and maybe you can take something away from that. My real concern started about four or five years into my career at Los Alamos. When I looked around and realized that there existed, for some people, such a thing as a career path, and I didn't have one. I mean, I looked at physicists and the application folks I was working with, and they had a pretty well-established thing where you go to conferences, you write papers, you do this, you do that, and there's an idea of here's what your career progression is. I looked at it as someone who was doing software support for the applications. What do I have like that? I really don't see anything, so I had to take it upon myself to invent a career path using a combination of ingenuity and creativity and finding some things that were out there and maybe putting them together in ways that people hadn't thought of before. For instance, one of the big things for me was a few years into my time at Los Alamos, you started hearing all this stuff about advanced architectures. GPGPUs, and before that, the Roadrunner cell processors, if you've ever heard of those. So you had these funky new architectures coming in that could not be programmed well without a knowledge of how this architecture worked and what kind of crazy things you had to do to make a physics code run on this piece of equipment. And you had whole projects full of physicists who looked at these things and said, we don't know what to do with that, do we really I was fortunately able to say, hey, I can step in and help. And I was able to take advantage of that opportunity and at least start to make a place for myself where there hadn't really been a place before. And I think at, at least in the near term, that may be what needs to be a strategy for some people who are doing RSE type work to find where you can make a place using the pieces that you have. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I really like that. So you're basically saying to identify things that you're good at that could add value, and then to kind of look around your institution and say, ah, there's people here that really could use the skill set that I have mm-hmm. and then you have to probably do a little bit of advertising You jump up and down and wave your arms and say hey I'm over here I know you don't want to deal with this problem or you don't think it's important but look it is important and I can help mm-hmm. and then to establish relationships over time so that when the next person comes up and they have some issue where they need that kind of skill set they say oh Charles helped me last time and he was really great and I think he's called an RSE and we should ask him again I think that's Great advice. And I would say, likely, if you can set up some kind of dynamic like that, at some point, you would hit projects where the work was large enough so you could be like, you know, this is using a significant portion of my time. We should figure out how a funding model for this works. So, for Mm -hmm. example, if it's a research group, they would want to put in allocation in their grant for that kind of work. I think we're still pretty far away from that. It seems like it would be an easy solution, but I get the sense that when there is a grant that's been funded, because people can't take so much time to be like, oh, so how much storage are we going to need exactly, and what Mm -hmm. kind of software engineering work are we going to need exactly, it's sort of an afterthought and then it probably isn't funded.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I can just give you a data point on that about five years ago i changed groups to a team within a group i should say that was doing this kind of work i'm talking about this intersection between rse work for scientific applications and high performance computing and advanced architectures when i joined that team five years ago it had five people i think we're now up to 16 or 17. That can tell you something about the thing you were saying when, when there's a niche that is meeting a need and that need keeps growing. That's a place for a group or a team to grow along with it.
0: To change the topic just a tiny bit, what is your involvement in open source and are there particular projects that you care especially about?
1: I can say for me and for the groups that I work with at LANL, a lot of the work that we do is either export controlled or classified so open source isn't very naturally an option that said we're starting to look at things like software infrastructure for this hpc work and for some kinds of physics routines where it's possible and where it makes sense to start getting into the open source world and putting our software out there as open source and you know, contributing to other people's open source and that doesn't work for everything but we're figuring out how to find when we can to be a part of that community
0: oh that's so great to hear i always get excited when previously not open source private things have the potential even to have a little bit of an open source arm because it means that it will be easier to work together have fun projects and just expand this wonderful universe of software that we have yeah So we're coming up on time. I want to ask you just a few more questions. How has your work been impacted with COVID and the recent stay-at-home orders?
1: I have now been working from home for about two and a half months. It's been a very interesting experience. It's required some creativity. Going into this, I did not really have the equipment to do all the things I needed to do from home. And by a combination of getting new equipment and creatively repurposing things that I have, I managed to get a setup that works, that I can work on all day and not have horrible cricks in my neck at the end of it we figured out how to have me work and work productively while my wife and kids are busy doing other stuff in our not very big house. It takes some doing, but we make it work. And after the first little bit of working through all these practical issues, actually found it to be quite productive and getting into the flow of working at home.
0: Oh, that's so great to hear. As a full-time remote person, I definitely empathize with that. And I'm really glad that you're finding your groove. I think that's pretty common to have to figure out a new routine. But once you get into a groove, it's like, yeah. For the last bit, we're going to play a little game that I just made up right now called Five Questions. I'm going to give you a sentence with a blank and you just finish it and then add any description that you think is necessary that you like.
1: Sounds good.
0: First sentence. My favorite food is?
1: My favorite food is, you mean I have to pick just one? Okay, I'll say ice cream. That's an easy one. My wife and I went out for a lot of ice cream while we were dating, so good memories there.
0: Okay, follow-up question. What is your favorite flavor of ice cream?
1: Oh, mint chocolate chip. Very good choice.
0: Next question. My favorite animal is?
1: My favorite animal is, I kind of like owls. Owls were the mascot at Rice when I went to undergrad.
0: Next question. The hardest language I've ever had to learn is?
1: I had to learn a little bit of Hungarian as part of a trip to Europe many years ago. That was a very challenging language to learn.
0: Next question. The best advice I've ever received is?
1: The best advice I've ever received. One of my supervisors a few years ago when I was going through some challenging times said do what you need to to take care of your family your family comes first which I kind of knew anyway but it was good to get reinforced.
0: Yeah that sounds like a really great supervisor. Mm -hmm. Okay last question we're going to spin that question around the advice that I would give to an aspiring research software engineer is
1: look at what you like to do look at what your institution really needs And find the intersection and go there. That's the way to make a career.
0: Oh, that's really great advice. And it follows along with what we were chatting about. Mm -hmm. So, Charles, it was really fun having you on the show. I think we had some really interesting discussion about the role of research software engineers and how it has sort of emerged over time. Maybe at some point in the future we will get over this corona apocalypse and return to something that is more resembling of normalcy and be able to actually shake hands and say hello to one another.
1: One of these days, it'll happen. Thank you for having me on. It's, I've enjoyed it. Awesome.